Welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I am Philip Thompson, and here, of course, is... Eric Armstrong. Hello. How you doing, Eric? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm happy that we've been keeping up the pace of these, uh, although I ought to say that uh, I'll soon be going away for some summer work, so we should make the most of it while we can. Yes. So today's episode is, uh, in a way, a kind of cleanup. I think we're in that phase of this podcast now that uh, there are some things that we've talked around but haven't fully fleshed out. Uh, and in this instance, it's what we could call shui and shwu, the unstressed forms of e and u. And we might uh, even get to shuo. Yes, exactly, which is uh, a bold new proposition. So, uh, yeah, this is the... Uh, it's the other side of lexical sets because what we always assume but don't always say about lexical set words is that they refer to the stressed form of a vowel in the reference accents of RP and General American. And that's how we arrive at them. So an unstressed version doesn't fully make any sense. And J.C. Wells foresaw this and came up with uh, three unstressed lexical sets. Happy, the second syllable of that, comma, and letter. I'm trying to do those with <laughs> no roticity. And we it's did hard not to stress that important syllable. <laughs> exactly. Letter. For, for us, perhaps. Uh, so comma and letter we've already talked about, yes, uh, in yes. episode number. Uh, five Five is uh, happy, and seven is schwa. Did you just pull that out of your head? I looked it up before the show. Okay, good. You have a very dry brain. Uh, so what we've got here is the unstressed form of E, and we may get into more detail about what it's really the unstressed form of, but it's in words like happy, city, friendly. But we thought today we'd include some of the other possibilities for unstressed vowels that Wells doesn't directly address. Uh, and so, although it's shui and shwu, we could also say this is just uh, vowels in our peripheral vision and uh, mm. what happens when they're unstressed. Right. Uh, and there's that, that fancy word, lenition. Yeah, I love that word. T tell us about lenition. Yeah. Uh, I always think of it like lento. It's it's soft. It's uh, it's the lightening of, uh, and so uh, there's an irony there in that Italian lento means slow, and often lenition happens when we go faster. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, when we don't pay attention to a vowel uh, or a consonant, uh, we do something to it to signal that it's less prominent. We m might lower the volume. Uh, we might relax either the tongue position or the lip position. Uh, we might make it shorter. Uh, and I suppose quieter. quieter, yeah. And there may be some pitch effect, but I'd rather not go into that. Uh, so. Uh, lenition comes from the word lenus, right? Yeah. It looks like 
the male member word that starts with a P. Yes. Uh, but uh, um, I think people often shy away from that pronunciation. They sort of say Lenis or something like that when they first encounter it. But yeah. Linus is the. Yeah, it's leaner. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, this process of lenition works on consonants. And I think we've talked before about uh, Raymond Hickey and his work on uh, lenition in Irish English. Uh, final T's, let's say, get lightened in different ways in different accents. And, and we've talked about that in our t, t episode. So in this case, uh, let's take a look at happy as our starting point, and then we might branch out from there into other places in which things relax. If we were to say the word P, uh, it would be different from happy in two ways. One, the aspiration would be different. That would be one way we would know that it was not a stressed syllable. Uh, we would also assume that it would be shorter. Uh, and it would also be more relaxed towards schwa. Does that seem like a safe way of... Happy. Yeah, whether... I think it partly depends on where in an utterance that yeah. P might come up. If, if uh, I was saying, I'm happy about meeting you, mm -hmm. um, that I'm flowing into something else, it's in, it's in the, the flow of my speech, I think it would reduce more than if it. I, I'm feeling really happy. Yeah. At the end of an utterance, we do that thing where we lengthen the final syllable, right. and so if we we. Uh, what's the opposite of lenition? Fortis, fortis, fortisize, fortition, fortition. It's I'll probably fortition. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, Usually we can find out what the length and form of something is by finding a song lyric, but I'm trying to think, and most songs in English avoid lengthening this because it's in its nature uh, unstressed. So we don't see, say, I feel pretty. Well, maybe we do. We do. Uh, and so in that case, we get more of an E sound, but probably most speakers of English move the position of that E a little bit. Uh, this is one that people who have taken speech classes are probably really familiar with uh, because it strikes many North American speakers as peculiar to be taught that the unstressed E is I. Uh, and that's mm. certainly a very, very common way of teaching English speech. Uh, and that's because for some people it is or uh, in some accents, it used to be. Yes. So uh, let's actually happy is a an art, a, a possibility in some accents. If if we go historically, I don't have all the history on on this, but pre Great Vowel Shift, certainly there were words. Uh, happy uh, was certainly a, a pre Great Vowel Shift word. That i was the same. That e was the same e as weef, which turned to wife. So that great vowel shift that created Price also at the time of Shakespeare did the same thing to these unstressed endings. So uh, two households both alike in dignity, uh, it, it did the same thing. There was a little uh, on glide to the E in those unstressed positions. Uh, but that went away. And as you say, in older RP, 
there's quite a low version of this E, happy, to the point where we could imagine the underlying vowel to be a kit word, whereas sure. you and I most likely think about the, it's just a relaxed fleece word. Yes. Um, and I think that for some people, it, their relaxed fleece word is, uh, it, it's lesser in that it's quieter and shorter, but mm -hmm. it's, the vowel quality is as intensely E as their fleece words. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, it used to be, I think, more common that we would have a, a, a more open version in Great Britain, but more and more it seems like we're getting pronunciations that are uh, fleece-like. And that really is, some of the Cockney sounds have been moving into RP, essentially. Right. And, and that process is known as happy tensing, which is one of my favorite uh, descriptions of, <laughs> of speech behavior. Uh, and it's something that probably is realized differently for a London speaker than it is for an American speaker, but it is moving that point of target from I to E. Right. A London speaker might have more of an on-glide quality, an E. Yeah, exactly. So it's more diphthongal in nature. And interestingly, um, more like the historical uh, great vowel shift E sound. Yes, yes. Now, I think it's also exacerbated in that sometimes uh, people learn in speech classes because of a, a transcription style, yeah. that they aren't necessarily intending to signal that this phoneme is a kit vowel. They are just using that as uh, an indication that it is a, a, a leanest form of the, of the fleece vowel. Yeah. Um, uh, now, if you are a user of John Wells' um, English Pronunciation Dictionary, that's what it's called, right? No, Longman Pronunciation <laughs> yes. Dictionary, yes. Uh, he chooses to use um, a symbol that sometimes is called shui. Uh, and it's differentiated from the fleece symbol because the fleece symbol is written with the lowercase i followed by that sort of triangular colon. Yes. And uh, Length that, mark. The length mark, yes. So that e is used for fleece vowels and then just a regular lowercase i with no length mark is used for this shui. Yeah. Um, but when we look at other pronouncing dictionaries like the English Pronouncing Dictionary, they use the symbol that we associate with kit, the small cap I, for this phoneme. That doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be pronounced E or I, uh, and John Wells makes a point of saying that it's sort of a, uh, an archetype. It, this yeah. symbol represents two possible pronunciations, E or I, but his intention is not to create another vowel that sits somewhere in between the two. Um, yeah. And but that, this is, that, I think, is confusing. It's really useful for a dictionary to not come down authoritatively in one particular place. And I, I had this experience recently. Uh, I always am worried when I tell stories about my students, just in case they're listening to the podcast. But Hello. <laughs> hello, and I love you. Uh, but I'm about to tell a story about one of you, about a group of you. 
I ask them for very detailed transcriptions. I've finished that work with them and I moved on. And then, as part of a Shakespeare class, I asked them to complete a pronunciation sheet for a play. Uh, it's what I do in my practice, I'm sure most vocal coaches do this, a list of difficult to pronounce words in the play and how to pronounce them. And in those, I use a much more phonemic, dictionary-type transcription style. Mm -hmm. I didn't mention this to my students. I just said, write down the, the transcriptions. And what I got back were the most astoundingly detailed, quirky pronunciations. Uh, that Can you give me an example of what um, it would be like? Yeah, I, I remember, uh, let's say, Lear was with an E and then uh, a slightly rounded, uh, or he used the rounded epsilon, so it was Lear, Lear in his attempt to try to model what he was hearing in his head, he was adding these extra little features uh, that weren't at all helpful for how do you pronounce that word. Yes. And so I had, to, I had to walk that one back. Uh, it is confusing, potentially, when you use extremely descriptive phonetics to get into the details. Very, very useful. But it's also very useful to be simplified and phonemic. Mm -hmm. The danger comes when people misunderstand which kind of thing they're reading. Right. So if I look in the dictionary and I say it says happy, and then I will read that happy. You want me to pronounce it happy? And certainly there are speech students who take that lesson and take it to the extreme. And so they end up having uh, peculiar speech choices, uh, which they then have to undo. Uh, so I think it is important when laying out different transcription styles that we explain what, how we want them to be used. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, and, and I've been as guilty as anyone. Uh, for a long time, I sort of tried to come up with a phonemic symbol to represent the kit, not the kit, the happy. So I, I appropriated the barred I symbol. You're not alone in that. that. Yes. Gary Logan uses that in his Shakespeare pronouncing dictionary. Right. And, and that's, if that's what you're doing, and you're letting people know what you're doing, then it's actually less confusing to say, whatever realization of that happy sound makes sense within your accent, that's fine, that's what it is. Uh, and if you, in fact, I would say that if you're doing that, appropriating one that's way out in nowhere it, or isn't quite the sound you're looking for might be better, especially if you're not otherwise going to be using it in your transcription system. Yeah. Uh, I suppose we could put, uh, uh, make up a symbol, you know, an I with a heart for a dot or something. <laughs> <laughs> and what I usually do is if I feel like I'm going to be that specific, I use the dotted I with the mid-centralization symbol so that I'm exactly the X. And it neatly goes over the dot, and it basically says E towards the middle. And then I right. get to be fussy, uh, uh, not fussy about 
where along that line it is. Yes. That, that's, a, I think, a good solution, and it both works phonetically and phonemically. You, you get the sense of what's going on there. It's different without being outlandish. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's a good idea. Now, um, before we started, we were chatting a little bit about a blog post that Jeff yeah. Lindsay had posted on his blog, which you can find at EnglishSpeechServices.com. He has a post from last June called 20 is more than enough, but it's written in his phonemic symbols, so the 20 is written in an odd way. So you, you don't want to type that in. I think you want to Google search for uh, yeah. EnglishSpeechServices.com and then um, schwa and shui. I think those words would give you a Google And how do you spell schwa and shui? Uh, schwa is S-C-H... S-C-H-W-A uh, of course. <laughs> shui is S-C-H-W-E-E. -E. Got it. Uh, and shwu is S-C-H-W-O-O. -O. So, so uh, I haven't read this. Uh, I've sort of scanned it since you brought it to my attention. Can you give me a sort of rundown of what it says? Well, he talks a little bit about John Wells uh, and this, what, what uh, he's calling sort of the archiphoneme of happy. So the, the use of the lowercase i to stand for either e or i pronunciations and uh, that that often that this leads to confusion because I, I, I think people just don't read the introductory, introductory material and so they think oh there's this third thing. He argues that it's physically impossible to actually have a third phoneme in between e and i. Because that there's they, so much variation between the targets of those two. Well, and that there's not really enough space for us to be able to differentiate a third sound halfway in between. That are uh, um, you know we have to create this sort of auditory map, stepping yeah. stones across the river. I think I've called it before, and the stones can only be so close together. And then we start to say, well, that sounds either e or it's it. Um, we yeah. can't have a third sound. We don't have the perceptive space in between those two. Indeed. That's a great way of saying it. So um, uh, he, he, I think, argues quite strongly for that. Um, he, of course, is coming at it from a more RP point of view because he's based in London. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, he does, I think, confusingly talk about some things that he calls false shuis and true shui. Um, that uh, I don't think we should go into. Okay. Um, but he does a nice job of differentiating um, two different kinds of shuis um, that have to do with uh, sort of the context where we might run into this uh, uh, leanest form of fleece, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, he, he, he lays out a rule, calls it the unstressed fleece slash kit rule. So if a consonant follows, you say i, or in many North American accents, you would use schwa. And if it's not followed by a consonant, in other words, it's followed by a vowel, or the end of the utterance, it would be e. So an example would be a word like retain, that unstressed syllable would either be i or schwa, 
menagerie, beneath, fidelity, mm-hmm. prefer, divine, enough. Those all have consonants following them. If it's going into a vowel like create, meander, beatify, fiesta, preoccupy, viola, uh, we get more a stronger E sound. Um, now, I don't know whether that crosses uh, crosses over to like word to word, like um, if I want to be athletic, I want you to really be athletic. I can't say be athletic, right? I have to say be, no matter how much I reduce that word be, it's going to, going to stay be, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, really, it. this rule is really just the manifestation of stress, that we only fully unstress those sounds coming before consonants. When we Because if we don't, we'll end up with a diphthong. If we have two vowels in sequence and one of them is really unstressed, they get mushed together. And so we separate them, create... Uh, well, one could say create, create... Yeah, but it, people do. It, but it wouldn't sound as cleanly two syllables. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So uh, how do I distinguish between create and create? They're, they're getting too close there. Uh, and so to separate the two syllables when they're both vowels, the two vowels in contact there, I keep some of the stressed version of the E and I make that more fleecy than kitty. Mm. I, I mean, I think we're talking around the same thing. Uh, I'm just always worried about rules that say you you must do this because I don't think that's how we're doing it. I think we're doing it as an unconscious way of keeping them separate. So we Well, I mean we we're not intellectually thinking about it as we do it. Yeah. But we do follow rules. Our yeah. brains are applying rules all the time, especially yeah. in the language world. So he goes on to say that um, prefixes behave differently mm. in that prefixes before vowels will still be e. Uh, sorry, before consonants will still be E. So, for instance, a word like depressurize, uh, we don't say depressurize because it's a prefix. Uh, uh, so, uh, reheat, whereas a word like reduce or decide, we don't say reduce, uh, we say reduce. We can reduce, reduce down in that and way, so but you can't say reheat. So by saying prefixes, we're saying these are sort of newer words that where the notion of it being a prefix is still there. It might even be hyphenated. Yes, we're we're tacking on the the prefix onto a a word. um, So what what is that? What's that thing called? A root word, right? Yeah. So we might say, I resent that email, and I resent the fact that you told me I didn't send it. Beautiful example. Uh, and, and that's so that we can clarify. The, it's like how compound nouns work. Uh, the, the two things have blended together in resent. Uh, it's a new word composed of those parts. And right. so we mark the addition of a prefix by keeping some of its fortis qualities. Yes. That makes a that, lot of sense. I, I often have a hard time coming up with examples of 
uh, shui in medial syllables. So he gives a few examples and how the same behavior happens there too. So irrigation or elevation, animosity, California, those can go to schwa in some accents, but in many they stay i. Yeah. Uh, and if they're followed by a vowel, they go more firmly to e. So variation, permeation, uh, grandiosity, riviera. Um, they're unstressed, but they're still more e-like. Uh, it's interesting that it, in RP, there's certainly a tendency in words like helicopter, I, invalid isn't one of these, uh, for that medial i to keep its e-ishness. He differentiates those as being after the uh, primary stress. So a word like telescope or helicopter uh, is after the stress as opposed to preceding it. So something like California uh, is before the stress. And so that makes a subtle differentiation. Um, and it's mostly lost on me because I don't retain, I don't have that. I don't right. say helicopter. I say helicopter. Right. That's fascinating. I had never looked into it. I was aware of the that what strikes me as peculiar pronunciation of helicopter, and uh, I, I never had a rule to apply to it. So right. that's a very useful thing for people learning dialects is to know when to apply the sound change. Yeah, caffeinated, aniseed, it all audible. would also be useful to have uh, an exhaustive list. <laughs> <laughs> it would. Uh, uh, perhaps that's something a graduate student could do uh, and send to us at Glossonomia. Uh, that's terrific. So those are, I had really only paid attention to happy in initial and final syllables. Uh, but this extra behavior in medial syllables is, that's great new information. Uh, have we exhausted happy? Oh, we haven't talked about varying realizations of happy in the final position, uh, except for the historical one, uh, a, uh, which it, there are a lot of rhymes in Midsummer where the final sound is a. Yes, uh, lots. Um, I did a production where we tried to do that, it did not work. <laughs> uh, well, you tried. There are, of course, uh, accents where the realization of it is more eh, like yeah. happy. Happy, yeah. Happy. Uh, much, much more open. Um, and for some reason, I think that feels easier for some people. It feels, and again, I'm, this is my hobby horse, it feels like something that comes out of the oral posture. Uh, yeah. If it's an easy place for your mouth to get to from the position it's hanging out in, it's absolutely easy. And My other take on that is that uh, like the difference between fine motor skills and gross motor skills, because it's so different from what they're ah, yeah. habituated to doing, uh, the shift from e to i is very subtle, whereas e to e, it's a big difference. And so, yeah. uh, there's uh, some research on uh, language acquisition and marketness, saying that people learn the strangest sound first. Right. I, I think that's moderated by the fact that sometimes you're not, not successful in learning strange sounds because they're, you know, like alveolopalatal sounds in Czech or 
the dental fricative for most languages other than English, yes. uh, it's hard to hear and hard to do. Well, it's easy to hear, it's hard to do. So, uh, happy, uh, hap from, I can't think of an accent where it goes any further towards schwa in final positions. We don't get happy. We do get believe and declare. Uh, so we, for prefixes, if we think of it as the same sound, unstressed kid or fleas, it can go completely to schwa. But not that I can think of in a final position. Are, are you thinking like the, the ED endings like ragged uh, or minute? Yeah. Uh, trumpet? So if it has another consonant after it, uh, yeah, for me, its identity as happy is so obscured at that point. Yes. Uh, and we talked about this uh, when we talked about roses, roses on the, well, we did a That's happy That's the schwa episode. episode. The schwa episode. That's the schwa episode. Schwa episode. Exactly. I was hoping you would say that. Yes. Uh, so that pretty much takes care of it. Uh, oh, sometimes people will have enough nasality in their voices that happy, even if it's not all the way up towards E, it may feel like it is. Uh, these people probably also uh, in choice and price and face have really tight second elements of their diphthongs. Uh, trying to think there's one last thing about happy. Uh, Probably not. So uh, let's go to Shwu. Shwu. Or, uh, and this is proposed, I think it might have been proposed by Amy Stoller, into as the lexical set word. Right. Uh, and it is essentially uh, goose relaxed. Yes. It may be realized as in the same way that a speaker might realize foot. Uh, but I don't think people think of it as part of the same as the foot category. As you said before, in happy, we have this sort of kit fleece uh, alternation uh, that conceptually people might think of it as both of them. For into, I don't think, I think of it as goose completely. And that. Yeah, I think there's weak form, strong form variations on into. So that uh, if I'm going to get into it with you. Uh, there I'm going into a vowel exactly. into it, so I need the ooh. But uh, if I'm going to get into something that I'm going to try on later, a little lacy number, um, then uh, that might be more of a schwa for me. And for uh, some accents, that, that it's distinctive that they don't do that, that they're right. always doing it uh, to be or not to be into each life. Uh, and they don't ever do into each. Right. So it's a sort of resurrection of lip roundedness as a link into another vowel. Uh, and I, I, I guess there's this sort of this third place that's it's not into and it's not into it's into that's rounded still. It is relaxed. Yeah. It it's not all the way to schwa, uh, and it. Perhaps it has, uh, you know, that it's not uh, as weak a pronunciation as uh, we might get as into something. We're going very quickly 
over that um, pronunciation into something so that there's a, defer, a, a differentiation, a stress. Um, so we can still get the lip rounding quality, um, but we're not going to a full goose realization. It's a, it's a detail of formality that it, many students are unaware of. So if they come to me saying, into each life, into my life, and they're the same, I'm introducing some new level of uh, retaining some part of the phoneme. So there's some linguistic detail uh, that I'd like them to retain, but only in some circumstances. Into my life, into each life, uh, it adds a detail which may increase intelligibility. Uh, it will certainly have some effect on people's perception of the person's class, but very subtly. Mm -hmm. And if they're saying into each life, they must, m my impression of it is that they must use a glottal stop to begin the next word, the, the each, because into each life without a glottal stop, um, it, we get that blurring that feels like a diphthong, as you said earlier. So um, to leave the glottal stop behind, you need to use the lip-rounded into each so life. So using labialization uh, prevents you from doing a glottal stop, which on balance might be better for mellifluous voices. You know, we're making aesthetic choices here, but it's really interesting to me to sometimes look at the choices that are given to us as arbitrary, as authoritative, and try to pull apart why they might have some benefit. Right, and perceived as being a bias towards them, yeah. um, that they, they don't have the choppiness that a glottal stop yeah. adds to it. Um, the, uh, but the, you know, as our audiences change, it certainly seems to me that more and more of my students come to me without the idea of uh, using labialization on a weak ooh, mm -hmm. uh, so they say into into each, um, that uh, uh, as that becomes more and more the norm, then the mellifluous version, as you called it, will seem more and more old-fashioned, more uh, precious, over the top. Yes. So we, we have to keep getting a sense of, well, maybe... Uh, Maybe I'm just being old-fashioned here. Absolutely. We have to double-check if the effect on audiences is the same as the effect on us. And, and that's why it's really important when we hand off this information to students that we give it to them as a tool that they have to check the results of. They can't just apply it as unconscious and authoritative. Another place that uh, it seems to be a shift in the way my students are using unstressed ooh, uh, because there's a lot of goose fronting, I'm getting a lot of tew. I don't think I would get it, and I have to go back and check some of my students' recordings, I don't think I'd get it in the transition into another vowel, into everybody, into each life, but I do get into, to me, and and really, what I'm getting is sort of a small lowercase, a small uppercase Y. T T T T T. So it's uh, a fronted ooh, very fronted ooh. Exactly. Or or even I'm getting just an aspirated T with 
uh, a fronted tongue position, so I get t. To me, uh, it's always associated with goose fronting, though. A student who has goose fronting will do that. Right. Now, the other place we, we haven't talked about shwu happening is in medial syllables. So in a word like peculiar, it's stressed. Uh, but in a word like particular, the k in that syllable is uh, this, this shwu vowel as well. That it could be schwa, but it could be u or a weakened form, a uh, 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 leanest form of u. Yeah. It's still, in that case, retaining the yod before it, uh, so we can hear particular. Are there any without yod? I mean, it, some people argue that there are pronunciations of particular, um, but you're, you're not going to have a, a shwu on that, though. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, particular uh, and particular may vary in terms of the yod, but they're, they're not going to have an u-ishness in them. They're going to yes. be complete schwa. Uh, and so the variation that we've got here on into is from u, or whatever your realization of that archetypal goose is, to something closer to the way you would realize foot into to be or not to be, <laughs> uh, or finally, completely schwad, to be or not to be. And that, that's a really, I think, that example. I had a recent experience of working with a director and actor who had differing ideas of how much ooh there should be in to be or not to be. And so, it really became necessary for the actor, in order to please the director, to really land fully on ooh for two reasons. One, to sort of train the mouth into that lip rounding, which was going to stand in for ooh, but also to please the director so the director could go, okay, good, it's happening, and, and relax his attention a little bit as well. Yes. So finally, I, I don't think... I can imagine a production in which we fully say to be or not to be that, that isn't six hours long. Uh, <laughs> to be or not to be. But also I can see the value in some lip rounding continuing to tell our ears that underneath that shwu is a goose. Hmm. To be or not so to be. So saying to be or not to be with a a completely unrounded schwa, uh, you feel a need to signal goosiness to, well, to that. Well, I'm just saying that I can imagine that being uh, not hard on the ear. But I, I mm. don't personally find to be or not to be hard on the ear. It tells right. me an awful lot about who the person is. Yes. And you could say it tells me a lot about how much they're indulging and enjoying the linguistic texture. But if, if you're playing it that Hamlet is just getting to the facts, then you should say to be or not to be. Then that emphasis... Depending on Hamlet's background. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, so there are two things. There are, there's telling us who the character is and what their context is, uh, which, you know, what clothes they're wearing, uh, what century they're in, what 
country they're from. Uh, and then the other thing is, what does it tell us about the person's relationship to language? And I don't think we need to always set the slider all the way towards the most indulged, the most syrupy, uh, <laughs> the, the <laughs> most ooish. Uh, yes. Because mellifluity is not necessarily our only good. Certainly not. Uh, and in, in the midst of trying to figure out whether one should live or die, <laughs> mellifluity seems yeah. to be low on the list of priorities, I would imagine. However, I do want an actor to have, I always say parsed out when I mean parceled out, parceled out every piece of land in between those two possibilities so that their momentary improvising unconscious can choose any one of those. Yes. But unconsciously, really, I don't expect an actor to say, well, I think I'm going to do this degree of lip rounding on this. Uh, but I'd hate for them to have to uh, undo the impulse to always do ooh, or to have never left their home base of always doing ta. Right. Yeah, I think the the pleasure of the or the opportunity to enjoy the pleasure of of a broad spectrum of possibilities is something every actor should experience. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think you and I take great pleasure in those things. Some actors do not. Yeah, and they feel that they're a sign of fakery. That to be true, they ought to make a choice that really distinguishes them as n not an actor. And, and so they use either their own accent choices or accent choices that they bring on board. I, I've had actors who did not grow up in New York City who their movie acting voice was kind of New York City. They, they took on a sort of attitude. <laughs> uh, so in any case, uh, that's Shu or into, and I think we might have covered all of the nooks and crannies of that. Yeah, I mean, there are accents, of course, where goose is uh, fronting quite a lot, mm -hmm. and so uh, that there's also fronting. It's not just California where we end up with fronting, and you know, the west coast of Canada, there's fronting going on in Vancouver. Uh, we get that as well. Um, so you might but, get an actor uh, saying to be or not to be. Right, to be, to be. And, sure. and again, if the audience doesn't hear it, and <laughs> as, as outside of the norm for the character, then there's no reason to try and fix it. Yes. Uh, so there's one last proposed lexical set, and I'm proposing this mainly in jest, and we could probably come up with uh, uh, others uh, for other vowels, but I'd like to propose window as a word, as a lexical set word, for the unstressed goat sound. Typically a final O. Yes. But sometimes you might well, have them I have initial O's, like Ophelia. Yeah, that's exactly the one I was thinking of. Uh, and, and Edith Skinner has a st uh, strategy for all of those, for Othello and Ophelia, uh, to make them a pure vowel O. What's implied is that they're also unstressed, and so some relaxation might be occurring. Uh, but I think that's not very specifically not asked for. 
I think what she's asking for is that they not be schwa. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Not Ophelia, but Ophelia, so that there's some lip rounding going on, some backing. So in the case of window, in some accents, we completely unround and move to schwa. Window, fella. Window, fella. I mean, yeah, fella tomato. is so mainstream that fella feels like a word. It would be peculiar to say fella. Right, the most happy fella. <laughs> yeah, uh, and potato and... It's interesting to me that if you said Ophelia has Ophelia is at the window or Ophelia is at the window window would stand out much more as an informal sound than Ophelia. Yes. Uh, that initial O sound I think has a lot more license to relax and not seem informal than those now, final sounds. The other thing is that being a final sound, final sounds exactly. end at the end of utterances. And at the end of an utterance, we're very unlikely to say winda. Now, you might say the winda was left open yeah. in flowing speech, but uh, what, win what was left open? The window. So we might have a, a form of speech where you could go to schwo <laughs> for this uh, weakened O when it's going into a a consonant. That but makes when me it's think. At the end of an utterance, it has to be O. That schwo could merge with comma letter in some accents. So you do get feller, uh, that feller over there. Uh, so it becomes schwa, so becomes letter, so becomes available for roticity. And we see F E L L E R written out and W-I-N-D-E-R, written out in some I dialects. Yes, and if you're a non-rhotic accent, then you typically use roticity as a way of indicating schwa. So winde is uh, indicated by writing yeah. what looks like winder to me. I mean, um, most authors are going to use I dialect not to indicate a specific accent choice, but to say, by the way, this character is speaking in a different accent. Uh, it's not that they specifically care that that word get pronounced that way. And Tennessee Williams does this an awful lot, that he'll throw in a couple of other spellings to remind the actor uh, not as targets. So I suppose we could, I haven't thought this through, we could say that there's uh, shui. Uh, we could take a lot of vowels and diphthongs and say uh, there's a difference between... Uh, away where it's stressed and uh, melee is there is that a going to relax at all yeah it's well, unstressed melee you're sort of stressing that may so if you say melee, melee well I was thinking about the second a in melee ah. now uh, in that Jeff Lindsay article he talks about a as that uh, often it, as it gets weakened, it becomes more monothongal. Yeah. So we get less of that A and more A. Um, Just like so the O in Othello. Right. So uh, today, uh, at the end of an utterance, you're going to get a nice A, but today was a good day. It would have much less diphthongal quality, and so you get more of the pure A. And I think that's, that's a process of lenition or smoothing, as we call it, 
on all diphthongs that as they become unstressed, there's less of a diphthongal element. And particularly for those closing diphthongs where they're heading towards yeah. E or heading towards U, the, that uh, as we speed up, we don't travel as far it, and they become more monophthongal. Do they head towards schwa as that first element? Well, perhaps not. I think that if we have a good example of, of schwa's occurring in the days of the week in some accents, Monday, Tuesday. So it, that's right. heading towards kit, really. Right, instead of Monday. Yeah. Uh, I now think that we need to, uh, we certainly don't need to devote another episode to it, but. Uh, uh, I, I now think there needs to be a chapter in a book somewhere uh, or on a blog uh, describing all of these because I think that we could probably come up with this sort of behavior that's essential to accents. You know, we pull up these details, we say, oh, these people say Monday, Tuesday, and we don't really think about it as a behavior of lenition uh, just like these other things like happy letter, comma. So there's a whole set of unstressed finals that behave in particular ways. Hmm. Mm. Uh, for the future. Start collecting them. Yeah, I think I will. Uh, so, that, however, I believe, completes our talk. It does, it does. It's always a pleasure to come and chat with you, even if I'm not quite sure what we're going to be talking about on a particular day. Uh, there's enough stuff rattling around in both of our heads that we can talk about it. However, I do, I, I do hope we get some uh, nudges from our audience uh, because we're only doing this podcast for the usefulness to people. So uh, if there are things you want us to cover, uh, please let us know. If you'd like so. to ask us to lecture your class on a subject that you've told them about a hundred times and you need us to say it, just let us know. Yeah, what a great idea. Um, so let us know by emailing us at glossonomia at gmail.com and we'll both get it and we get back to you. Terrific. All right, well, until next time, Eric, and I just wanted to say to everybody that it may be that we'll get another one of these scheduled before I go, but it, it may be... We may be taking the summer off, so... We may be. Uh, go back and listen to episode one, then, if you've completed this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we'll be starting back up in the fall again. Terrific. Take care. Okay. Bye, everybody.